0: African countries need a lot of financial resources for development, for energy transition, for new social opportunities for its people. And that's what Arab countries can provide with their immense financial resources in sovereign wealth funds, in uh, different state funds and state uh, hydrocarbon corporations. So they can really provide these financial resources that are needed by African countries.
1: Hello and welcome to the Africa Dialogues. I'm your host, Laura Chikonya, and here we explore the big stories and trends transforming the continent today, told by decision makers, thinkers, and doers. Today's guest is Artyom Adrianov, researcher on Arab affairs, consultant to business on the region, as well as expert at the Institute for International Studies at Ngimo University and project manager at the Primakov Center for International Cooperation. Artyom was the host of the hit Russian-language podcast The Oriental Express for the Primakov Center, is the author of the Telegram channel All Is Well in Dubai, has authored articles for Forbes, Viadomisti and other top media outlets, and is also regularly featured in both Russian and international media. During the episode, Artyom and I focused on the rising power of Gulf countries in Africa, what they are doing right and wrong, How these strategies enhance African development needs and why they are able to position themselves as key mediators for conflicts on the continent. Here's our conversation. Artyom, it's a pleasure to have you on the Africa Dialogues podcast. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for inviting me.
1: I'm really excited to have you here today because you are a fellow podcaster. You are actually the host of a very famous podcast here in Russia about the Middle East. You're a consultant. You're an expert on the region. So it's good to to finally have another podcaster on the podcast.
0: Yeah, I'm very happy also to join you because I've been listening to your previous episodes and they're really, really amazing and very insightful about like uh, Russia's strategy in the region and Uh, different aspects of the development of uh, energy, economy, and uh, Africa itself, like how to discover Africa from from another angle. So thank you for hosting such a wonderful podcast.
1: Thank you. Likewise, likewise. So the main idea of today's conversation is something that's close to home for you. It's the topic of how the Gulf states are working in and with Africa. And this is a very important topic, I think, because we speak a lot about the scramble for Africa. We speak a lot about the different roles that different players fulfill on the continent and how they can you know, help African countries, how they hinder them in certain ways. And there's a very big kind of global conversation going on right now about this. I think that there's a lack of knowledge about Gulf states in Africa, and I think that even more so. There are a lot of stereotypes and there are a lot of myths that need to be busted. And that's what I hope that you and I are going to do today. So let's start off with my first question, which essentially revolves around these different groups of actors working in Africa. So we have the first big group of the ex-colonial powers. Then we have, I think we can probably group Russia and China together because very often, you know, especially by western countries they're seen as a threat but they have kind of these new strategies and then we have the third group and i'm there by no means am i implying that there are only three groups i'm just mentioning some of them but the third one that i would mention is the group of the gulf states i've heard many complimentary things about them from africans i wanted to ask you why are they interested in africa what are they doing in africa today
0: Uh, well first let me start with the just to be on the same page with all the listeners so by Gulf states we usually mean Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait and Oman while in Africa of course the most active are I would say the three players the UAE, Qatar and uh, and Saudi Arabia so they have uh, invested a lot in several African countries they have deployed a lot of uh, financial aid to some African countries they have been active in uh, as uh, mediators in some african conflicts they have I- even tried to uh, to gain access to some strategic infrastructure in these african countries so it, so it depends but um of course not not all of africa is interesting for them because first of all the the main region that is most interesting for them of africa is north africa because these are arab states these are like brother arab states as they would call them and they have the same culture, have the same religion, so they are interesting for them because of this cultural uh, cultural background. And um, they have mostly political, ideological, uh, sometimes economic interests in these countries. Uh, then comes the, the Horn of Africa region, which is also connected to, this, uh, to the North Africa through Sudan. Uh, they share some of uh, some of the problems, they share the access to the Red Sea and to the Bab Mandep mandeb Strip, uh, uh, Strait, etc. So uh, the Horn of Africa has also become uh, a very interesting region for them. But then there are also some other regions, like some of the countries, particularly the UAE, for example, are quite interested in Nigeria or like South Africa and Mozambique, primarily because of their interest in... Uh, Port infrastructure uh, through their state corporations like DP World, Dubai Port World, or uh, like Emirates Airline, which flies to many African states. They have uh, interests in hydrocarbon uh, industry uh, with gas and oil. We have stakes in some, for example, like Qatar Energy, uh, the Qatar state uh, hydrocarbon corporation has interests in four Egypt's exploration blocks for uh, pumping gas from the Red Sea and from the Mediterranean Sea. They have interests in some South African states. So they have inv- tried to invest uh, a lot in hydrocarbon uh, sphere, and now they're also focusing on renewable energy, particularly the UAE with uh, the COP28 approaching that will start soon in the UAE. So they are also investing heavily in renewable energy. So I would say that here in Africa, they in some regions, they pursue mostly economic opportunities, while in some regions, they prioritize their political and ideological interests, such as the uh, north of Africa and in to some state in the horn of Africa and uh, what i mean here is that after the arab spring after 2011 we have seen a very fierce regional rivalry between qatar and turkey on one side and the uae and saudi arabia on the other side since uh, the uae and saudi arabia was supporting more secular forces that have uh, uh, that have become active after the arab spring after the fall of regimes in indonesia egypt uh, After the fall of like Syrian regime, which is not Africa, but still this is all interconnected. In Qatar and the Qatar and Turkey were betting on Islamist forces, which are more close to them ideologically and politically, and this created a lot of um, a lot of new conflicts, such as the conflict in Libya, for example, where the UAE supported the eastern forces and like the Libya National Army of uh, Khalifa Haftar. While the Turkey, Turkey and Qatar supported the Western, uh, the Western powers in Libya. I mean, the powers in the Western Tripoli in Libya. Uh, they have conflict, and in, in Egypt, for example, when uh, from 2012 to 2013, Qatar invested heavily in Mohamed Morsi government, and they deployed a lot of financial aid to him, which all ceased after he was overthrown by uh, Abdel Fattah Hassisi. Which is uh, close to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And then all this moved to Sudan in 2019 after the fall of the Omar al Bashir's regime. And uh, then also moved to the Horn of Africa, where there was uh, rivalry for Somalia, for Somaliland, Puntland, and Somalia for their port infrastructure. There were a lot of conflicts around Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Djibouti, also uh, connected to their port infrastructure and air bases etc so here like mostly military political uh, and security and ideological interests were all intertwined it's very hard to distinguish one from another
1: That's interesting because you mentioned that first and foremost, when we speak about their influence in the region, it's North Africa and we have the MENA region, so Middle East and North Africa. And very often those who deal with Africa, I've come to find, and I think that you would probably know a lot about this as someone who deals with the Middle East. Not everyone considers North Africa part of Africa. So it's interesting that here, you know, I guess the the closeness, the geographical closeness, and I'm, I'm sure that that's when we speak about how closely tied the regions are it's more than just geography it's it's culture i think to a certain extent it's religion maybe it's politics some social elements so i think it's an all encompassing partnership and interrelation that i think brings the two regions really close together and it's interesting as well what you said about how it's not just about opportunity but it's a, it's kind of this proxy space to kind of battle it out on a neutral third territory and i think we'll get into that a little bit later uh, as we continue our discussion but the the next question that i would ask is about what they're doing right what do you think gulf states are doing right in africa like what are some of their best practices
0: well, first of all, some of the, for example, financial aid that they deploy to African countries, usually it comes with no strings attached, So, which makes it different from the aid uh, that is deployed by international financial organizations like the IMF, for example. And uh, th- there are cases in which uh, some African countries chose uh, bailout or just some financial aid from Gulf countries just because they did not demand any reforms. They did not demand any economic changes, political changes, uh, unlike IMF, for example. Uh, So this is the first thing. Well, sometimes it could be better. Sometimes it could be worse. So the results can be different. But uh, a much more interesting thing is that, for example, uh, there is a very interesting piece of scholarship written by Karin Young, a very famous scholar that studies economic, economic policy in the Gulf and she wrote a paper about Gulf financial aid and direct investment. And uh, she did not only calculate the amount of aid that was deployed by Gulf Arab states to uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Egypt, and Sudan, but she also calculated how much jobs all this aid created. And uh, when we compare the the whole aid deployed by uh, GCC countries, like the Gulf countries, uh, all of them, when we compare how much jobs their aid created in for example sudan or djibouti it is much more than jobs created by chinese or the us or even the eu uh, investments or financial aid because even for example in sudan she counted the jobs created from 2003 to 2020 so throughout 17 years and Gulf Cooperation Council created uh, GCC aid created five times more jobs than Chinese investments, and more than like ten times more jobs than EU investments and financial aid to Sudan. So uh, they really seek to provide aid to these countries uh, so that the aid achieves its results. Well, when we talk about the results, this is where we find a lot of criticism to GCC countries because for some reasons, they uh, direct this financial aid and investments to friendly political regimes when they face some economic problems. So they direct this aid in order to stabilize these regimes and provide financial aid, not to the country itself, probably, but to to the elite of this country so that they stay in power. So which was the case in, in Sudan, for example, when where um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, according to some sources, provided much aid to uh, Omar al-Bashir's regime. And when they started to notice that Bashir was drifting more towards Turkey and Qatar, uh, they just stopped uh, financing him. And mass protests erupted in Sudan, and uh, what happened next you know like there were there was a military coup and uh, bashir was uh, was then put in prison. yeah so uh, then the same thing happened in egypt when for example when mohammed al-mursi was uh, in power the president of egypt that was elected in after the arab spring when he was in power uh, everybody knew that he was close to the islamist forces and to qatar and turkey so qatar supported egypt heavily in that time so they invested billions of dollars in egypt and deployed uh, and deposited much uh, currency reserves on egypt's bank, central bank accounts but when he was overthrown by abdel fatah Sisi, immediately qatar aid stopped and uh, the UAE and saudi arabia came into play so the gcc financial aid and their investments and economic projects in general are very dependent On political situation and on whether they consider the uh, the powers of this country friendly or unfriendly to them and if it when it comes to arab countries whether they are friendly ideologically to them but that was the case until until like 2021 or 22 when many regional countries started to normalize relations, it all started with the uh, Al-Ula agreements in two thousand twenty-one, when Saudi Arabia and Qatar normalized relations and the blockade uh, of Qatar was lifted. So this this pattern of uh, ideological rivalry started to to wane down, and uh, now we see that uh, sometimes Qatar and the UAE and Saudi Arabia they try to work together. Uh, as, for example, now the political situation in Egypt has not changed, but Qatar energy is very active in Egyptian in ex- exploring Egyptian oil, res- uh, oil and gas reserves. And there is no more this uh, such fierce ideological rivalry. So what they're doing good, they're really trying to support the economy and support the people. What they're doing wrong is that uh, their financial aid and investments are very unstable because they are connected to the political situation in the country and uh, unlike the aids provided by the eu or s- and sometimes the united states
1: that's interesting because i guess we see a situation where there aren't any economic strings attached but a lot of how that aid will continue to enter the country depends on whether or not the status quo will remain as is so I think it's it's also interesting because I, we often speak about China in that respect as a very generous donor that doesn't attach any strings. But I guess whenever you say that, you need to keep in mind that there's always uh, there's always an extra clause hidden somewhere. That it depends on something, that aid, that help, that support, it's given for a specific reason. And I think when we speak about China, for example, very often there's this fear that African countries will end up in a debt trap and that Chinese investors will never enter a situation in which they might lose and that their interests will not be respected. So, for example, you know, we have the very scandalous cases of strategic infrastructure objects being seized or the fear of such and i guess that's the exception so it's interesting that when we speak about gulf states as well they have their own exception uh, which makes sense because i guess uh, you know in life there's uh, life is not black and white and there's always a more nuanced story so you you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that there are essentially kind of three leaders amongst the gcc states in the region can you speak about where their leadership lies? For example, one, for example, might be a leader in terms of economic assistance or just their economic activity in the region, maybe in terms of perception amongst Africans. Maybe there's one uh, GCC country in particular that stands out and is much loved by Africans. What is your vision of that?
0: Well, here I can tell you only from the Arab standpoint, so I don't know what's uh, what country Africans like more. So uh, maybe maybe you can elaborate on that later. But as for um as for their um, areas in which they specialized, well, I would say that they were all um, pretty much in they were working pretty much in the same sphere throughout the years as they were deploying financial direct financial aid. They were depositing foreign currency reserves in central banks. They were investing in some economic projects. They were uh, creating some economic mechanisms for boosting mutual trade and investment. So um, uh, I'm not sure that I can say that each country has its own area of specialization. While previously there were some geographic areas of specialization that like Libya was mostly for UAE and Qatar. Egypt was for uh, was dominated by Saudi Arabia mostly, uh, like in the UAE in a little bit. Then the Horn of Africa was mostly about the UAE and Qatar rivalry, and Turkey sometimes also entered into play. So I'm not sure that I can tell you which which are in which areas they specialize because when it comes to Gulf states, uh, the big problem here is that there is not much statistics available. Because uh, like, for example, foreign aid and uh, foreign direct investments, we cannot find like a big data set on that. We should collect all this data on the internet, and which is uh, very, very difficult uh, to do because we have to spend much time doing that. So, for example, there is a good study uh, published by um, a Bahraini scholar Hassan al-Hassan and uh, and uh, camille Lons, right so they collected a lot of data about gulf bailout diplomacy they called it uh, about how saudi arabia qatar uh, the ue and kuwait which is not very active right now but was previously very very active in the second half of the 20th century how they uh, deployed their financial resources as a geopolitical tool or as a that's just a political tool. So where they directed their aid, etc. And uh, they spent much time just collecting this data, not just analyzing it, but it took them a lot of time to collect all this data because uh, there is no one source where you can find a lot of information about that.
1: And would it make sense to say that this geographical distribution of influence is largely determined by whether or not the country beneficiary of aid and support and help has a regime in place that is friendly to the country donor. So, like, how important of a factor is it the the issue that you and I discussed earlier of how you know help is usually offered to friendly regimes?
0: Yeah, sure, it it, it is it is important. Uh, well, in after the Arab Spring, it was extremely important what regime was in was in power and uh, or or to to which. Um, to which country it was leading more. Like, for example, Sudan, it was gaining aid from both the UAE and Saudi Arabia block and the Qatar and Turkey block, but then the UAE and Saudi Arabia demanded that like you should choose sides in this rivalry. Uh, however, now, now we can see that this uh, rivalry has um, diminished and there are no such strings attached to the aid or to the investments as to the friendliness of the regime so-called so uh, now countries seek more like economic gains from their financial aid or reputation gains as they try to market themselves as like responsible international players that pay attention to global economic problems and to african problems as well and uh, like they try they try to market it more. That doesn't mean that they were not doing that previously. Because, for example, in the study published by Hassan and Hassan, they found out that, uh, for example, the so-called bailout aid by GCC states over a long period of time was uh, more than the so-called bailout aid provided by the IMF. So uh, the GCC states have a lot of financial resources, much more than the IMF. But uh, it was the, their practices were not studied until recently. And that's why we don't know much about how they uh, help African countries, how they interact with African countries. And uh, that, that's good that we are recording this podcast now, actually.
1: Yeah, I can imagine um, people feeling the same way about Russia where we kind of have this new strategy and these new approaches. There's this huge debate going on about, you know, Russia, whether or not Russia returned to Africa, because we've been there this whole time and for a lot longer than many other players. And yet we use the word return and some think that that's not particularly fair. But I think in any case, we have a new strategy and new approaches and instruments that I think are largely misunderstood abroad. So I guess it's a two way street and just as we need to be more curious about what other global players are doing in Africa, we should also tell our story well to make it more accessible and for other countries to see, I think, a lot of the good that we're doing. Um, but you you used this phrase, African problems, and there are a lot of problems in Africa today. And one of those problems in particular is the security situation. So there are two elements of this issue that I wanted to discuss with you today. The first one being how big of a problem for Gulf states is the African problem of security, especially when we talk about the, the northern part of the continent, which is geographically a lot closer. Is that something of concern? And then the second element, which I think we'll get to a little bit later, is about how uh, GCC countries are peacekeeping. So but before we get to that, let's talk about the concern. Is there concern among amongst the Gulf states about that?
0: There is concern. There is concern, but uh, not. I think in every country it is different, because uh, it seems like the most concerned country here is Qatar, because before the Arab Spring and after the Arab Spring, Qatar was perceived as a uh, state that was really into mediation, so they were mediating conflicts. All over the world, and particularly in Africa. So they were mediating the Darfur conflict in Sudan. They were mediating conflicts around uh, around Sudan, even in Western Africa. Uh, currently, they have uh, they are mediating talks in in Chad, for example. They were uh, a lot of conflicts, a lot of conflicts uh, in which they have uh, a role. In Saudi Arabia, for example, they are not so active. They are mostly known for their mediation in Sudan conflict which has erupted in april so uh, together with uh, together with the us uh, saudi arabia was trying to bring the parties together and they even had a meeting in in jeddah and some kind of a peace agreement that uh, unraveled very soon unfortunately but saudi arabia was the most prominent player there uh, because they uh, because like sudan is very very close to them uh, we have some economic interests in sudan we have this uh, cultural and religious attachment there and so on the uae as it seems to me um, are not really into mediation and trying to fix security and political problems but this is this is just not in their foreign policy strategy so when it comes to mediation and really solving some political problems, I would pay more attention to Qatar here because they seems it seems to me that they're really good professionals in mediation.
1: And what gives Qatar, if we're speaking about Qatar in particular, what do you think gives Qatar credibility as a mediator?
0: Well, this is a good question. I think in each case they have some... Uh, they have something to offer to both of the parties and they may have some leverage over over these parties to to make them come together, sit at one table and talk but sometimes this is just the reputation of um of a neutral player uh like a small Gulf state that has big financial resources but that doesn't have any, uh, any bias towards a party in the conflict when it comes to some african african states but uh, i think this case the the case of qatar's mediation in uh in african conflicts needs some uh, needs a lot of study because this is really interesting
1: yeah that's true i think um Having asked that question, the first thing that came to mind for me was the concept of skin in the game. So as Nassim Talib coined the term and wrote a whole book about it, about how you can only be fully invested in something when it will affect you. So I guess I can imagine and correct me if I'm wrong, that Qatar has skin in the game, especially because of their limited... Resources in terms of land and uh, the, the geopolitical situation that they were in until recently. So I guess, yeah, time will tell and kind of they, they, there's definitely a lack of information out there about why and how when we talk about GCC countries in Africa. But I think um, it's a big conversation that needs to happen.
0: Yeah, sure. I think uh, Qatar always tries to be to be uh, like uh, to be needed i would say that all the global players need qatar for such very delicate missions for example especially when it comes to the u.s so i would probably even follow like qatar's and u.s interests in each case because they have mediated a lot on behalf of the u.s as with the Taliban uh, case in Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, such as the U.S.-Iran, uh, prisoner swaps and uh, nuclear deal mediation, and even now with Gaza and Israel. Uh, so it's Qatar that is uh, the main focal point for uh, for mediation there. So, uh, yeah, Qatar case is very interesting.
1: Yeah, that's so true. So I guess the, the final question that i'm going to ask you today uh, during our conversation is i usually ask my guests what they feel when they think about the future of africa but because you're a specialist on the middle east i'm not gonna torture you with a question like that but i'd rather ask you what your expectations are for the next couple of years of gcc country africa country relations what what is your vision for how that's going to evolve
0: Uh, i think this is going to evolve more towards um... First of all, we will see much more economic cooperation between the countries because African countries need a lot of financial resources for development, for energy transition, for new social opportunities for its people. That is And that's what Arab countries can provide with their immense financial resources in sovereign wealth funds, in uh, different state funds and states uh, hydrocarbon corporations so they can really provide these financial resources that are needed by african countries and um, they they will invest more in them they will uh, d- deploy a lot of uh, uh, a lot of money in in african countries in many various in, in various sectors energy renewable energy uh, education it everything so uh, i think uh, there will be more deals between african and uh, gulf countries so secondly i think uh, gulf countries will become more involved uh, politically in african countries because with all these um, deals and gulf countries love like big deals like for billions of dollars of investments buying big stakes in ports strategic infrastructure Energy generation, everything. With all these strategic investments, come uh, political interests come in play as they have to defend their investments. And as the security situation in Africa is sometimes very unstable, uh, they will have to invest politically in, uh, in in Africa, and they will become more involved politically in um, African conflicts and mediating African conflicts, uh, trying to secure their economic economic interests and uh, sometimes even their religious interests as as we know like saudi arabia for example has always positioned itself as the defender of the muslim world as the leader of the muslim world so uh, this religious religious aspect will also come into play and i think saudi arabia has not yet real fully realized its role or has not fully realized what pro, what role in, it can play in uh, in africa
1: yeah, I have to add that you, uh, you said that Gulf countries are ready to fund. And I think that that's really important for African countries today because we see this huge untapped potential. And then we see this huge hunger for infrastructure. I think it's a conversation that I've just heard so many times at this point about how there are... Infrastructure gaps in all senses of the word infrastructure that are stopping Africa from achieving its economic development goals. And you just spoke about ports as well. And I think that that's a huge topic. Just recently, I saw data on how, on average, uh, in comparison with the Asia Pacific region, African ports and African logistics infrastructure is twice as expensive and twice as slow. And I think when we speak about the you know trade within Africa, trade with Africa, creating value chains, which is another hot topic when we speak about African development. There are very objective and very serious barriers. For example, logistics that are stopping that are hindering Africa's growth. So I think that it's it's encouraging for me to hear you say that that they're ready to finance because I think that that's a huge barrier that africa needs to overcome but there's this lack of trust and there's fear of falling even deeper into the debt trap because africa some african countries are not doing particularly well when we speak about their debt situation so i hope that the partnership will be able to serve both sides i hope that you, you mentioned religious factors as well I think that that's a super sensitive topic when we speak about African countries, because there've been so many uh, wars or conflicts that arose from ethnic or religious reasons uh, and causes. So I would hope that, you know, GCC countries would be responsible in that role, and if to interfere only to prevent conflicts or issues arising and to be this kind of big brother that helps guide African countries towards their big, beautiful, bright future.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I hope so, yeah.
1: So time will tell, but I thank you for your time and I look forward to monitoring the situation, to getting some answers to the questions that you and I brought up today. Thank you for being here.
0: Yeah, thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Thank you for listening to the Africa Dialogues. This episode was recorded under the Mgimo University Development Program, Priority 2030.